We're in Acts chapter 20, week 25 of our study through the story of the beginning of the church. As Luke has taken us through this beautifully written story, Luke the doctor, well-educated, writes creatively, pulls us along in his story. Some events seem to be stepping stones to the more significant moments. As we come to this 20th chapter in Luke, it begins with two stepping stones towards the only thing that Luke ever records that Paul says to Christians, and in particular, to Christian leaders. Those of us that serve in leadership take this passage very significantly. All of us admire those who are very successful at what they do, and that's true of the pastorate as well. We want to learn from them, and if Paul was around today, he would be the most sought after of all. He is the world's most successful church planter, the most successful missionary. He invented it. But here's the thing. When we look at Paul, it's not about his methodology, and that's often where Christian leaders get off base. We see somebody, we want to know how they do it, and we try to do it that way. And it's not to say that methods aren't good, but it's not about Paul's methodology. It's about Paul as a man. It's about him as an example. When Paul talks to these leaders, believing that for him it may be the last time they will ever see him, He has his last opportunity to impart to them the wisdom he's learned about what it means to be a leader, and he doesn't give them a strategy. He gives them his life as an example. And therein lies the true essence of Christian leadership. Paul put it this way, you follow me as I follow Christ. This is how Paul said it to the church at Philippi. I'd like you to say it with me before we begin reading Acts 20. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. That's exactly what we see Paul doing here. Now, we're covering a lot of material and really the two stepping stones are worthy of a sermon on their own, but I just want to honor them by way of giving you background to this more important event. So let's begin at verse 1 and read through to verse 12 to get the background When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews had a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, Aristarchus and Segundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also and Tychicus, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. So if I'm going to follow apostolic standards, I've got about 13 hours left to go here uh, in in this sermon, so uh, buckle up. 
preached until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Interesting turn of phrase. <laughs> I love Luke. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. I'm sorry to be laughing at this moment. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate, and after talking until daylight, he left the people. They took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. All right, so let's look at these two segments of Scripture that are meant to lead to this pivotal conversation with the leaders at Ephesus. Uh, The first section is about plans and intrigue. Have you ever been listening to a movie and your stomach's kind of in knots, tension's building? The soundtrack has this dull, little, low-pitched rumble in it. There's tension building. That's what we're supposed to be feeling here. We've been looking at all these places where conflict has erupted everywhere where the gospel came. And next week, we're going to see it come to a boiling point. Paul feels like something's happening. God's told him the work as he's experienced it is coming to an end. The plots that have followed him from city to city, all of the attempts to bring him before the legal courts and to make cases in the public forum and even in the, um, in the synagogues have failed, and now they're, they're just, they're just going to kill him. Were he to take that ship back to Jerusalem, they were just going to take him at some point and just toss him overboard. And so he stays in Greece for three months teaching. He misses Passover, and his next goal is to get there by Pentecost. He's driven towards Jerusalem. Danger lies ahead, but he knows through it, God still has a purpose for him. He lays over in Troas, and again, Paul has this notion that each of these encounters is his last. Now, we know that he will ultimately be released from his first imprisonment, and we know that he will see some of these people again. But I want you to capture this idea that everything he's doing right now has import. It matters. It's his last opportunity. No wonder he goes on and on. No wonder he speaks till midnight, and even when one of the young men who just couldn't hang in with him falls and has this tragic death, and Paul says he's alive, the Greek language there literally means his life has come back to him. Remember, it's Dr. Luke who's telling this story, who knew what dead looked like, And it wasn't just mostly dead, it was dead. Dead is dead. Luke understood that. Paul comes back and he raises him from the dead. Just another one of those demonstrations that the apostolic authority of the power of the Holy Spirit is with Paul. It continues to be with him. In the middle of this lengthy story, he finishes this miracle and instead of everybody going to have a party, he gets up and he keeps preaching. (laughs) Imagine that. Raising somebody from the dead is just a means to continuing to preach the word. In this posse, in this entourage, is an interesting mix of names, and Luke points them out to help us understand what this community of faith was all about that God had birthed through the gospel, Jewish men, Roman men, and former slaves, Segundus, literally the name second. You see, when slaves had children, they were just named by numbers, different than uh, any community of faith that's ever existed before. Let's pick up the story now at verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. 
He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Asos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem if possible by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, now we're gonna stop here and just set this up and then we're gonna look at everything that Paul says in the remainder of the chapter. Paul has called what Luke refers to as the elders, the leaders of the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding area of Asia. People picture this church in Ephesus like most of us experience our church body, which is, you know, a church our size or smaller. And so when they see elders, they make this mistake of presuming that there were these group of men who together had equal authority over this small body of believers. And that's the basis for a movement of church governance that believes in eldership. But that's not what Ephesus was. We know what happened in Ephesus. Paul was there for three years. Every person in Asia heard the word of God. Thousands of people came to Christ. These are the pastors of congregations throughout the region. And the other thing we need to recognize is that they answered to someone. They answered to Paul. And later on we learned that they actually answered to Timothy as an authority who put them in place and mentored them and established guidelines for them. And then Timothy represented the apostolic authority with Paul. See them that way and it will help you understand. These are the spiritual leaders from the whole region of Ephesus. Paul gathers them together and he says things to them that you can break down into three things. And you'll see them in your notes. The first is Paul's example. And then there's Paul's exhortation. And then finally Paul's exit. Paul's example begins at verse 18. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. We could spend weeks looking at this in detail if we wanted to, chasing down every idea here, but I want to just list seven values, seven priorities that Paul says As you have watched me, I have demonstrated these things. And as I do, I want you to think about 
who I'm supposed to be, who other leaders in this church are called to be, but also be mindful that when Paul says, you follow me as I follow Christ, this is also to be true of all of you. The very qualities that you ought to see in your leaders, you ought to aspire to yourself. And so look at it for yourself also. The first thing he talks about is authenticity. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I think one of the most difficult things for spiritual leaders is just to be real in front of people. Once you're given the position of alpha Christian in a community, (laughs) once you're the top dog spiritually, it's very tempting to hide behind that position and pretend that you are the expert on everything you're talking about every given Sunday. One week you're the expert on finances. Another week you're the expert on revelation and prophecy. The next week you're the expert on marital relationships. Uh, There's no call for that. Paul says, you know, you watch me. I lived right with you. You need to be able to look at your leaders and say, they're with us. We know them. My dad, who was also a pastor, um, it was interesting during his later years, really had very few friends. But my dad had thousands of people that respected him. Because his whole time as a pastor, he bought into this idea that he had to maintain this level uh, above people. And he couldn't get really too close to anybody inside of his congregation. The result was that he was revered, but not necessarily known. The thing about Paul, and when we see at the end when he exits, this great weeping and, and affection that they share for one another is that Paul did life with his congregations. Now, some of the reason why pastors don't get too authentic with churches because churches expect perfection of them. You get real about something and somebody doesn't like it so it's easier just to back up and not show your cards, so to speak. Churches expect perfection of men who sometimes, even apostles, go on and on and on in their preaching. I wish I had the resurrection trick. Every once in a while you you find somebody falling asleep on Sunday. I have never personally experienced that, but I know others who have experienced that. We're imperfect people. Paul says we are earthen vessels, and it's through our flaws that the the light of Christ shines greatly. So authenticity. The second thing he talks about is a spirit of servanthood. Verse 19, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Now, this is important. The Greek word for serving is the verb form for the word in the noun form for bond servant. In other words, to serve out of indebtedness. He's saying I was a servant not to people, but to God. Now, Jesus obviously said the greatest leader is the servant of all. And we need to serve one another. Servant leadership is quite true, a priority of scripture. But Paul puts it in perspective and says our first priority, we are first above all servants of the Lord. And sometimes you have to make a choice. Sometimes you have to decide as a spiritual leader, am I serving God or serving man? Am I gonna obey what I know God is calling me to do and his expectations in my life or try to meet everybody else's expectations? And I want you to know, the only way I can be fully for you, who I need to be, is to make serving God my priority. I can only be 
best for you when your needs come second to his priorities. Now, that's not to say that your needs don't come close second, but you serve God first. And then he talks about two qualities. We do it in humility. We do it in humility. Not I, but Christ. And then he talks about doing it with great tears. Paul speaks often about his tears and his emotion, his anguish over those that he knows are lost without the gospel that are unreached. His anguishing over congregations who are struggling with immorality or with all sorts of issues or persecution and how much he weeps for them. You see, when you serve Christ, when you serve him above all things, you lay yourself aside. And sometimes that means sacrifice. Sometimes that means pain in the midst of it. But servanthood ought to mark every spiritual leader. And, and frankly, that's true of you too. The third thing he talks about is courage. Verse 20. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. That takes courage. There are a lot of people who can be popular by not saying everything that needs to be said to people. Bible refers to that as tickling people's ears. You can't be a true servant of the Lord and a true shepherd to the flock if you're not willing to say the hard things and know that sometimes they cause pain and even anger. Sometimes they're at your expense. If you're not willing to do that, you can't lead. But interestingly, that ought to be true of you too. The easy path is not the path of the cross most often. The fourth value, and I I struggled over putting this word up here, but I'm going to use it and then explain it. Evangelical. The news uses this term like we used to use the word fundamental to describe a form of Christianity that's very legalistic and judgmental and uh, mean-spirited. But the word simply means bringer of good news. That's all it means. It's about the gospel. Evangelios is the gospel. A true evangelical is grace-filled, loving their neighbor, glorifying Christ, doing good before men in the name of Jesus, and faithful to the best news of all for everyone, and that is that forgiveness and eternal life is possible through the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 21 I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Listen to me. No spiritual leader is following the Lord if they are not faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we shy away from it, never talk about sin, never talk about grace, never talk about forgiveness, we are not following God's lead and therefore we are not true spiritual leaders. The gospel is at the center of everything we are to do. And a godly leader keeps himself, his message, and his congregation focused on it. Evangelical. The next one is spirit-led, verse 22. And now, compelled by the spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Paul says, I am bound by the Spirit. It's interesting, um, 
Paul Joyle and I were talking about one particular preacher that we both have been listening to, and his take on this whole thing was that Paul got it wrong going to Jerusalem. That God was giving him all these warnings, and he went anyway. And that somehow was a problem. And, and in looking at this, I realized that there are those that hold to that. But I can't, I can't go there. Because Paul says, I am bound by the Spirit and therefore going to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was compelling and moving Paul to Jerusalem in spite of the knowledge that danger and imprisonment awaited him. I think the assumption that just because we're warned about bad things means that we go the other way is not true to Scripture. The safe path is not typically the way of the cross. He is compelled by the Spirit. That word means bound up, held, moved, pulled by the Spirit as though it's not his will, but the Spirit has such hold on him that he knows he has to go to Jerusalem. He has to face the darkness if he's gonna fulfill the mission that God has for him. He's Spirit-led. He's focused. Verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I love this point because it means that no matter what lies ahead of him, Paul has a longer vision than the danger that looms nearby. He sees past it. He has an eternal focus and he longs to complete that mission. That steals him to step forward into the danger that's in front of him. He keeps that focus. And then finally, Paul has always been scriptural. And that's verse 26. Therefore I declare to you today I am innocent of all the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. The job of spiritual leadership is to keep people focused on the whole of Scripture, not just the part that they love the most, and they're gonna become the specialist on that little area, whether it's prayer or spiritual formation or creationism or end times. They become so specialized that they forget the fact that we're not a a one-category spirituality. Our job is to bring the whole word, and sometimes that feels good, sometimes it hurts. Do you remember when we were doing our study on what the Bible is and how to interpret it. We're in the book of Revelation on our first Sunday and John is caught up in this vision and there's this giant angel who has a scroll which is supposed to be the word of God and one foot is in the ocean, one foot is on the sea and he's speaking this and it sounds like thunder and John's trying to write it down and this giant angel turns to John and says, stop writing. Then he hands him the scroll and he says, eat it. What does he say? He says, at first it will be sweet to you, but then it will be sour to your stomach. That's our relationship with the word of God. There's a sweetness to it. It's beautiful, but yet when we often try to digest it so it changes our lives, it hits uncomfortable things. And that's where the real transformation can begin. When God's word comes up against the things in you that need it, that you should now begin to experience discomfort about so that God can transform you. A pastor lets God's word 
do all of that, just like all of us need to do that as, uh, as men and women of the word. All right, so that's the seven things that I want to list about Paul's example. Then he turns now, and he wants to say something of exhortation to these leaders. Verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I want to break this down into three warnings. As I was looking at this, I started coming up with a whole nother list of, uh, of bullets. And then as I saw it, there's really three areas that Paul's addressing. In addressing these three areas, Paul is coming up against the three traps that spiritual leaders often fall into. The first is spiritual stagnation. The second is shying away from doctrinal debate. When it gets hard to hold the truth, taking a softer line, drifting doctrinally. And the third is seeking your own benefit and your own prosperity through your ministry. So I think the three warnings go like this. Grow, guard, and give. The first is grow. He starts by saying, keep watch over yourselves. Keep watch over yourselves. Of course, that's about my personal walk, my time management, my integrity, who I am when no one's watching. I need to guard myself. When you're the top dog, when you're telling everybody else how to live your lives, one of the greatest traps of pastors is to preach out of stuff they've already learned, to not be personally growing, to not having God continue to change and transform their hearts. And I think eventually congregations catch on when pastors have stopped growing personally. On the other hand, if a pastor keeps growing, there's no end to how God can use him or her any more than you. We have to always be focusing on growing. I don't ever want to just become somebody that regurgitates lessons learned from the past. I want to always be learning more and excited about what God's showing me and then pulling you into it, pulling you along. The second thing is to guard. He starts by saying guard yourselves, but then he goes on, he says guard the flock. He uses the term shepherd here. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, we will very often look at this whole idea of pastor as a shepherd and compare that to Jesus' use of the word shepherd relating to himself. Because Jesus was the good shepherd. He laid down his life for the sheep. And very often we will look at all the ways that Jesus is our shepherd and then we will say that's what pastors have to be. I don't think that when the book of Acts and the epistles refer to the term shepherd 
that the intent there is to be exactly the same thing that Jesus is as our shepherd. Now, we should all be like Jesus, amen? But what I'm saying is no single human being can replace Jesus. None of us can. I've thought about this. I had a job description. I found it on my computer still. And you want too much out of your church staff. Senior pastor leaps tall buildings in a single bound. Is more powerful than a locomotive. Faster than a speeding bullet. Walks on water. Discusses policy with God. That's a pastor who's trying to replace Jesus. Executive pastor leaps short buildings in a single bound. More powerful than a switch engine. Just as fast as a speeding bullet. Walks on water if the sea is calm and talks with God. Associate pastor leaps short buildings with a running start and a favorable wind. (laughs) Is almost as powerful as a switch engine. Faster than a speeding BB. Walks on water in an indoor pool. Talks with God if a special request is approved. Worship director barely clears the music building. Loses tugs of war with locomotive. Can fire a speeding bullet. Swims well. (laughs) Is occasionally addressed by God. Director of discipleship. Makes high marks on the wall when trying to leap buildings. Is run over by locomotive. Can sometimes handle the gun without inflicting self-injury. Doggy paddles well. Talks to animals. (laughs) Youth minister. Runs into buildings. Recognizes locomotives two out of three times. Is not issued ammunition. Can't stay afloat even with a life preserver. Talks to walls. Church secretary. Lifts buildings and walks under them. Kicks locomotives off the tracks. Catches speeding bullets in her teeth. Freezes water with a single glance. And when God has spoken, she has been known to ask, may I ask who's calling? (laughs) No perfect pastor. There's no perfect way to pastor. And no pastor can replace Jesus. You know who replaces Jesus? All of us. That's why we're called the body of Christ. I have my role, but I can't be Jesus. I remember when a a group of disgruntled uh, people in a church that uh, I was in decided that they were going to tell me what my job was. And they came with this list, and I I would very much like to be this person. But this list was Jesus. And I said, you know, I would really like to be this person but I can't be all these things. I'm only one person. I have only one set of gifts, one set of abilities, one personality. We all are Jesus. When Paul refers to being a shepherd in the book of Acts and in his epistles, he is primarily talking about two aspects, guiding and guarding. You see it right here. When he says shepherd the flock, he explains exactly what it means. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away the disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So let's be clear about this. The pastor's job as shepherd is not like the pictures of Jesus who picks all of us up in his arms and takes care of all of our wounds and is there for all of our birthday parties and all of our important moments. And if we have an issue, 
the pastor's the one that's going to swoop in and rescue us. That's not the shepherd that Paul's referring to. The primary job of the shepherd is to guard you from ravenous wolves who will come in with false doctrine and try to lead you astray and to guide you into truth. That's not to say that the pastor shouldn't be caring. Sounds like I'm wanting to check out of being a loving and caring person. I hope those of you that know me know that that's not me. But my point is I gave up a long time ago trying to be that for everybody. And for me to do that is to aspire to step up for what the whole body's meant to do. We weep with one another. We rejoice with one another. We carry one another's burdens. We encourage one another to love and good deeds. I desperately want to be a part of that. But it's something we're all called to do. In terms of being a shepherd of the flock, the biblical priority for that is to guide into truth and guard against doctrinal heresy. And that takes courage and commitment. And then the third thing he talks about, guard, grow, and give. He talks about his own example of being a generous man, that he, he worked hard, did his part in making ends meet. He didn't expect people to treat him as someone to be elevated and to have bestowed upon them all these gifts and adoration and adulation. He said, no, that's not what it's about. We're to be generous. It's better to give than it is to receive. It's so easy as a pastor to leverage your position for your own good, for your own financial good, for your own personal acclaim, for the power that it gives you. It's so easy to leverage the role of leading people to benefit yourself. Our calling is to give of ourselves in the same way Christ gave of himself, which is absolute. These three things ought to mark any spiritual leader. We ought to be growing, we ought to be guarding the flock, and we ought to be giving. We need to be generous people. I found my whole attitude in preaching this a little, uh, I don't know how you've picked up the sermon today. This has been an interesting week for me to talk about what the Bible says I should be to try to contend without being defensive, to try to exhort, and then to open myself up to you and say, look for this in me. It's not a common experience. It's not a common thing to do. But I'll tell you, that's who I aspire to be. And even though Paul didn't always measure up to this because he also was not Jesus. You you know that, right? I don't think people fell asleep on Jesus when he preached. I think he calls us all to this. and So I ask you to pray for me, even as I call you out to be this along with me. Let's be followers of Christ together. The final thing, of course, is his exit. When he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, They all wept, they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to his ship. What an interesting set of opinions about Paul abound at this point in Acts. His followers weep at the thought of not seeing him again. He is so loved by those into whose lives he has poured himself and poured the word of God. And yet, In that same city, in the same region, others are taking vows that they will not eat again until they kill him. 
And this is one of the hard things about being anyone who would lead spiritually, but really any, any follower of Jesus Christ. There's no gray in terms of people's opinions about you if you name the name of Christ. It's why Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. It wasn't that he wanted that, but he knew the gospel created very clear choices for people. And so what we have here is a picture of this wonderful community of love and support and gratitude in the midst of this rising storm and the uncertainty of what lies ahead for him, which we'll pick up next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of Paul, for his faithfulness to being a follower of you and being authentic and being true to your word, being courageous. Father, I pray that for me, but I pray it for all of us. I pray that we would be true, faithful followers of you and that through that you would use us to transform this region and to call Christ out of each other. In Jesus' name, amen.